Now entering Nerdist.com. True it. With a guy named Kevin. True it. And this other guy, Steve. True it. From the TV and the movies. And now this podcast stream. True it. They're gonna get chewy. True it. They might even get me. True it. But they're gonna get funky on this podcast thing. <laughs> Très magnifique. Hello, everyone. This is Steve Lemmy, and on behalf of Kevin Heffernan, I'd like to welcome you to another episode of Chewing It with Kevin and Steve. I was just uh, imagining eating a delicious bite of Kevin Heffernan cheese. I don't know if anybody remembered, but last week I compared him in my little birthday wish to him. I compared him to a fine aged cheese, a stinky cheese like the French would uh, would have. And I, um, I I said maybe like a Jarlsberg or a Munster. And I caught a lot of heat for that one because people said, well, actually, Jarlsberg isn't French, nor is it stinky, and Munster is not stinky. So I took uh, I took the liberty of uh, looking up the top 10 smelliest, stinkiest cheeses in the world, and I'm just going to give you a couple of highlights, okay? Um, number 10 is Taleggio. It's the only Italian entry on this list. And uh, it is a stinky cheese, but the manufacturers are actually trying to make it less stinky so that they can get it more into the mainstream consciousness. So that's kind of interesting. Number nine is Stilton cheese. This is a British one. They say it's the, the king of English cheeses, cheeses. And if you subscribe to the smellier, the better school, then you'll definitely want to try it. Uh, interestingly about this Stilton cheese is the manufacturers have created a fragrance, a perfume called Eau de Stilton. For people who really actually want to smell like the cheese. Okay, leave it to the British. All right, eight. And I love our British fans. They know what I'm talking about. Okay, eight. Stinking Bishop cheese. Um, it's, uh, it's the oldest one of the stinky cheeses on, on the list. And uh, people say this one smells like smelly socks. Okay, number seven. Limburger the only German cheese on this list, and also the most popular of smelly cheeses. It is compared to the smell of human feet. Okay, fantastic. Number six, Roquefort. And just one of the many French cheeses on this list, because the French just know their stinky cheeses. Okay, um, this one, interestingly, was banned in countries like Australia and New Zealand until a year ago. Interesting. I did not even know that. Okay, number five. Brie de Meaux. It's not like your regular pasteurized milk brie that you find in the American market. This is a uh, a stinkier one, a softer one, and, um, you know, I like brie. Okay, number four. This is interesting. Epoisse. Epoisse is definitely one of the smelliest cheeses you can find. Just so you understand how disgusting it is, this thing has been banned from public transportation vehicles all over France. Amazing. And it smells like somebody who hasn't showered in a week. So, enjoy. Number three, Munster cheese. So everyone who said Munster wasn't a smelly cheese could just shut the F up, okay? Because this one has been nicknamed Monster cheese due to its unbearable odor, okay? And its smell is compared to sweaty feet. All right, so I just wanted to point that out. Okay, number two, Camembert. Camembert smells like the secret project of a chemical company. That's what they say. And it is a soft, runny cheese. And it is eaten with a spoon. And can't you just picture a bunch of French people sitting around just spooning cheese into their mouths like, mm -mm, this is almost as good as Fernand cheese, but not quite as stinky. 
Okay, and the number one stinkiest cheese is something called Pont Levesque, another French cheese, and it fucking stinks. Okay, enough about the stinky cheeses. Let's get into the main order of things. Let's do a couple quick plugs and some information before we get into Paxton. Uh, tour dates. Thank you, by the way, everyone who showed up for our East Coast um, shows, everyone in Arlington and Baltimore, Boston, Philly, and D.C., I mean in New York, everyone everyone in those areas. Thank you so much. The shows were awesome, rowdy, fun times. But we're hitting the Midwest now. We're not done touring, okay? Here we go. And we added some tour dates on. Okay. June 19th, Kansas City, Missouri, Casey Moe at the Riot Room. June 20th, Milwaukee at the Miramar Theater. June 21st, Chicago, Illinois, Abbey Pub. June 22nd, Des Moines, Iowa at Woolies. And rounding out this little leg here, June 23rd, yeah, hey there, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Mill City Nights is the name of the venue, Mill City Nights. And uh, look, if you live in St. Paul, Minnesota, you can come too. Okay, that's it for the Midwest, and then we're going to be moving on to the Pacific Northwest. We just added on a few dates. Okay, so here we go. These are coming in July. July 18th, we're going to be in San Francisco at Cobbs. July 19th, we're going to be in Portland, Oregon at the Hawthorne Theater. And July 20th, we're going to be in Seattle, Washington at the Sunset Tavern. Then July 21st, 22nd, and 23rd, we're actually going to be in Vancouver, British Columbia. We've got three shows in, th- in uh, three nights at three different venues, and uh, we're nailing those, uh, the specifics down. That information should be up shortly. Okay? If you missed any of this, you can find all of that on our website, www.heffernandlemmy.com. You can also uh, find us on Facebook at Heffern and Lemmy. Um, you'll find the links to the tickets on both of these sites. Also, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Steve Lemmy. Kevin is at Heffernan Rules. Our little redheaded stepchild is Instagram. It's Heffernan Lemmy. Okay, that's our social media, and we like social media. Okay, Fatty and Tatty. A lot of people have been asking, where is episode two, and why can't I even find episode one anymore? Well, we had a few legal issues. It always comes down to the law. And uh, we're resolving it, and hopefully you'll be getting Fatty and Tatty really, really, really soon. Maybe this week, maybe next week, I hope. Okay, with no further ado, let's get into the chewing it. We have part two of our awesome two-part conversation with Bill Paxton. Last week, we talked about really just Club Dread stuff, and Paxton burped a lot, in case you wanted a recap. And I reprimanded him because it's not that kind of podcast. It's a gentleman's podcast and a gentle lady's. It's a gentle person's podcast. It's a person's podcast from the planet Earth. And this week, we're going to talk more about Bill stuff. We're going to talk about his body of work and uh, you know how he got started and, and all that. He's going to tell some funny stories from Titanic and other, other uh, events in his life, some weird science stuff. Anyway... It's awesome. Bill is awesome. We had a great time with him, and I hope you're enjoying it, and, and I hope you enjoy this installment too. With no further ado, let's chew it. Can we go back to the beginning? I'd like yeah, to yeah. know how you got your start. I mean, I know like the Woody Allen thing, and uh, you came here, but like – okay, so you're uh, – in Texas, did you have – what was your interest in – Oh, I've always credited my dad. My dad really was, I mean, credited or blamed him. My dad loved movies and plays, and he was kind of a, you know, he did, wasn't big on sports. I mean, he he liked sports, but, but I remember as a child going to more plays and, and movies. And Fort Worth actually had a, at TCU, they had a very cool uh, 
theater department, and they did all the classics. I remember seeing, um, oh, I don't Tennessee Williams and William Inge and stuff like that. But uh, I remember my dad would talk about the artifice of what we'd seen. We'd come out of a movie or a play, and he would talk about the lighting or the sets or, or things that you don't think about as a kid. You know, you're so caught up in the story. You're so engrossed in it. And so at an early age, I became aware of the artifice of what I was watching. And I fell in love with that magic. And that's really where it all came from. And then uh, when I was in, in high school, I remember I, had, I was trying to get out of an English assignment in the 10th grade. And you could, you could write a paper or you could make a, f a film. And I decided I wanted to make a film. And I made a film where I was... Uh, Using what? Like a... Super, super 8. 8, eight yeah. millimeter, uh -huh. something like that. And uh, we were living out in the country. I was going to this kind of country high school. And uh, I remember getting my, a buddy of mine, and, and he was the jock, and I was kind of the, the misfit kid who kind of ODs or whatever. And uh, so I, I just thought, you know, I, I just I just love the idea of making films. Uh, and so I... Um, I, 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 I decided when I was 18 I wanted to go out to Hollywood and I asked my dad if he knew anybody in Hollywood and he said, well, I know a guy that makes kind of these educational films mm -hmm. and uh, for Encyclopedia Britannica and he ended up giving me a job. So I Doing came what? out here. Just as a, just a go for a PA. Okay. In fact, on the way over here on, on Pico, uh, I, was, uh, go, I went drove by the place. Oh, really? And I haven't been driven by there in a long time. And uh, it was a place called Carthay Studios. It was just one soundstage uh -huh. there near uh, Pico and Fairfax. Okay. Uh -huh. And when I first came out here, Clint Eastwood had an office in this place for some reason, and, and uh, I never saw him there. But what uh, year, May I ask what year this is or no? Yeah, this, yeah no, I don't care. Okay. It's, uh, this was 1974. Okay. It's like around January 1974. Okay. And uh, I was 18 years old. And uh, I remember Jim Backus also had oh, an office Jim there. Jim Backus. Jim Backus. Thurston Howell. It was Thurston Howell on, on Gilligan's Island. Yeah. He played. He did the voice of Mr. Magoo. And he came down to the set one day from his office, and I got to meet him, and that wow. was a big deal. That's awesome. Didn't you act, I love Jim Backus. Didn't you act in like, like crazy mama with him? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> It's what's for dinner. It's, it's what's for Brittany. She's what's for dinner. Oh, God. God, <laughs> uh, What did you ask? Uh, about, what did you Jim fucking Backus. ask me? Jim Backus and Crazy no, Mama. I never believed you. Uh, I, I didn't say blow anything. <laughs> <laughs> Would you blow? Would you joke? <laughs> Crazy Mama was a movie directed by Jonathan Demme. Mm -hmm. ah. And I had worked on a couple other Roger Corman films. Is that where you went from? Did you, did you jump into the Roger Corman thing? That whole Yeah, I, I pretty much got my start with Roger Corman. Uh, the first movie I worked on was a movie called Big Bad Mama. He uh -huh. had done a movie called Bloody Mama. Big Bad Mama was Angie Dickinson, William Shatner, uh, Tom Skerritt, Linda Pearl. And it was one of these 1930s kind of Bonnie and Clyde deals. And then, uh, and then Jonathan Demme directed one with uh, Cloris Leachman called Crazy Mama. Yeah. And I was working on that, and one day I heard over the radio, they, uh, I heard them, they were, look, I guess some day player hadn't shown up, and uh, I heard over the radio, hey, get that, get, that kid off the art, get that kid off the art department truck and cut his hair and put him in wardrobe <laughs> and bring him over here. And, I, and they did that, and I went up, and I played like a deputy, and I had one line. And, and it was that the first time you got on... Camera? I guess that was the first movie yeah, I was. Movie? I was a big movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, not big movie, well, but, but a professional, feature, a, professional, a professional feature film I was in. Yeah. And uh, did you love it? Or 
you're like, ah, I don't know if I want to do this. or really. I guess in the back of my mind, my heroes had been guys who had been um, filmmakers and performers. Yeah. My dad had turned me on to Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin and a lot of the great silent clowns. And, yeah. And, uh, and then growing up in the 70s in Texas, you know, guys like uh, Warren Beatty produced Bonnie and Clyde. I loved that movie. Um, Clint Eastwood was making movies like Play Misty for me. Yeah. Uh, it seemed to me that actors who'd gotten to a certain uh, notoriety who had um, decided to empower themselves as filmmakers, you know, tell stories that they, they were passionate sure. about. Uh, Robert Redford was another one. These yeah. guys were all kind of my heroes. Yeah. I don't think I've met any of them. Uh, I don't know any of them. Really? Nope, never met any of them. I ah, fuck them. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't. I don't feel that way. They they were they were great mentors. They were great mentors to me. You know, we all have all have all have different kinds of mentors in this life. Sure. Some that we know and and and, and have a direct contact with, but the others that never know we existed, but they were still inspirational to us. Kind of like yeah. when you walked by me in City Crab, and nodded to me. I was like, that's who I want to be. <laughs> uh, go I think you're reaching, but okay, I'll I'll take it. Is that how you kind of hooked out, like with Cameron, or was Cameron a guy that you was he with Cormant? Was he at, right, yeah? Jim right? was it Jim, and I met Jim Cameron in 1980 when he uh, he was doing his second feature uh, as an art director. He had done Battle Beyond the Stars, and this was a movie that was called The Quest, uh, and uh, I can't even really remember who was in it. But you were weirdly enough, though uh, Grace Zabriskie was in it, who I would uh-huh. end up, who would end, I would end up playing her son on on yeah, Big, yeah. On Big, Big Love. Love. Yeah. But uh, I met Jim. I had a very dear friend named Phil Granger, uh, who was from Canada, and his dad was uh, kind of worked in the art department. His sister Robin and um, we had made fish heads together, a little short that I, I sold to Saturday heads. Night Live. And, and we had met on a little independent film. It was one of the first parts we had. I don't, I don't even remember the name of the film. Can you, can you believe that? Yeah. I, I can't even remember the name of it. <laughs> and, uh, but we became friends. And he was working on the night crew on this movie called The Quest. It would later be released under the title Galaxy of Terror. Okay. I've never seen the film. But he told me about this young guy he was working with uh, named Jim Cameron. And he thought, God, you, and I think I can get you on the night crew if you show up. Show up at 7 o'clock. And I, I was living on the same street about 10 blocks away. This is over in, uh, in uh, Ocean Park in Venice, California there. Sure. And I remember going down to meet Jim. And Phil introduced me, and, and so I had kind of a five-minute conversation with Jim. Jim said, well, Phil told me you'd work for Roger Corman. You worked in the art department. Yeah, that's right, Jim. Yeah, I worked on a couple of films. He said, uh, well, can you can you start can you start right now? And uh, I, I went, uh, you mean right now? He goes, yeah, go paint that wall over there. <laughs> and so that's how I got started with uh, Jim Cameron working on this night crew on Galaxy of Terror. And about I, during the production, you know, it'd be late hours. And Jim was always in and out, and, and uh, he, you know, he's always been a hands-on guy. Yeah, he's not a guy who sits there and gives orders. He's, he's he gives orders while he's jumping in there and, yeah. and helping out. And I think we were painting a wall or doing something, and uh, we started talking. And I told him about I just made this short that I gotten on Saturday Night Live called Fish Heads, and he wanted to see it. And I remember I remember one night we went to some club, some KROQ thing out in the valley mm-hmm. it was some and we 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 loved to play chicken in our cars he had a <laughs> opal gt and i had like a what the hell did i have i had like a rabbit or something like that mm-hmm. 
and we would we would, and we were going to go to this place, but instead of going together, we thought it'd be more fun to just kind of play ditch him all the way over there. <laughs> yeah. And we got over there and we saw the thing and and when he saw that I had ambitions, you know, beyond, you know, building sets, he opened up to me and started telling me about his own ambitions. Yeah. At the time he was he was just starting to work on a script uh, about a cyborg from the future that comes back to the present to kill a woman who's going to give birth to a son who in the future is going to lead a revolution against the machines. Uh, I, I was saying, wow, that's, that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. I said, what are you thinking about calling? He said, I'm going to call it the Terminator. And four years later, he made that movie. So it was just four years later. And you're in that movie. I did you're a, ca- I did a cameo yeah. uh, part in that movie. You're the guy that Schwarzenegger takes his clothes from. or was and, that Well, he rips his heart out. He rips... Yeah. Uh, I don't know if he ripped my heart out. I always he thought I your survived. Chest out I, 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 I don't think you did. did. You would have uh, Actors always think I, they survived. They want to be around <laughs> the for the sequel. sequel. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It is, but that's how I met him. And he's been a great friend. And Is he a contemporary of yours? Or is he a little older than you? or We're contemporaries. But he always felt like an older brother to me. Yeah. Right. So at the time... Uh, and by the way, it is it is hilarious to see that t- the opening scene of that movie and watch Arnold stick stick his hand in your chest and yeah. lift you up in the air. He like, doesn't yeah. stick his hand in my chest. Where does he, he does. put it? Yeah. Stick his hand in my pants. Yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah, right through jelks right through your crotch and jelks your dick all the way across <laughs> Los Angeles. <laughs> he terminates his jelk. Weird science. When does that come? Come after Terminator or is that before Terminator? Well, wait, hold on. That's that, after Terminator. Well, stri- you you were in stripes. Oh, Stripes, uh, I right. Was, I was technically hired to do a part, uh, a day player part of a soldier who who makes a wager with Bill Murray in the mud wrestling scene with John Candy where he ends up in the mud wrestling pit. Um, I was on the set for four days, and I never shot the scene. So okay. really, I'm just a glorified uh, you know, background person in that movie. But I remember... Um, getting to know bill murray a little bit and he i remember being in his trailer he had me into his trailer and he had this whole um kind of he was showing me how all these different um lotions and things (laughs) (laughs) no but i I couldn't believe it it was bill murray and i i i had to pinch myself but no he was he was really a nice guy Uh, uh the other weird thing was uh bill butler was the DP of that of of Stripes, and he was also the DP on Jaws, mm-hmm. and he would later be my DP on on Frailty, oh, he was. which okay. was my first movie okay. to direct. Okay. So that was kind of strange. Okay, now before I, I do want to get to the movie you're talking about, but I remember when you were down on Club Dread, you also showed us a music video that you had been in, hmm. that you had. Worked on, I remember it with James Cameron or like, oh yeah, oh yeah, that was I was in a I was in kind of an art band with a, with a buddy of mine named Andy Rosenblum, and it was uh, it, well, his name was Andrew Todd at the time. It was a band we we had an art band. It was called Martini Ranch. Yeah, and we put out a record on uh, we put out an EP and then we put out an LP on Sire Records. And we did two videos. The first video was a video called "How Can the Laboring Man Find Time for Self Culture?" Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're blowing number one hit. And, uh, and and it was a big KROQ it's hit. R- <laughs> number one above uh, the Jackson Five's ABC. And we did kind of a we did kind of a takeoff on uh, Metropolis, the Fritz Lang film. And and then the second one was our big release, and it was a song called Reach. And at the time, I, I, I mentioned to, to Jim Cameron I was doing this thing. He said, hey, you know, I've always wanted to direct a music video. And 
I said, would you consider directing ours? He goes, yeah, sure, if, as long as I don't have to take a meeting with a record company. <laughs> and I said, well, God, great. So uh, so Jim ended up uh, directing the Reach video mm-hmm. right. for Martini Ranch. And Catherine Bigelow's in the thing, right? Catherine Bigelow, I had just done Near Dark with her, yeah. one of her early films. And uh, and we had a, and he, she had re-teamed uh, four of us from Alien, well, three of us from Aliens, uh, Lance Henriksen, Jeanette Goldstein, uh, and myself. Mm, yeah. And that's just when they were uh, Jim and, and Catherine were getting to know each other, and um, so we talked. You know, it's funny that we were able to talk her into being kind of the Clint Eastwood, the, right, the right. female Clint the cigar Eastwood. Cigar in her mouth, right? Kind of yeah. yeah, I remember that. Because uh, she's painfully shy, yeah. she's very introverted, yeah. even to this day. She's, yeah. very, she's very introverted, and she blushes very easily. But uh, we were able to talk her into doing this <laughs> thing, and, and we shot it out at the Valuze Ranch out near. Uh, Santa Clarita out near Valencia. You can probably find it on YouTube. I bet people could find that on YouTube. Oh, yeah. Martini yeah. Ranch. Search for it. Yeah. yeah. Bill yeah. Paxton. And what was the name of the first song? How Can the Laboring Man Find Time for Self-Culture? Who? Did you write that? Find Time for Self-Culture. What Steve. was in the... I'm going, I'm going to try it. You need to. I know I do. I know I that do. That was one of his sayings on Club Dread. <laughs> you <laughs> got to tend your own fire. You got to tend your own fire. That's what Billy used to say. Did I? Did yeah. he? Did he? So, but he doesn't even you know, remember. It's always funny in retrospect the things people remember you doing because usually it's all bullshit. You know? <laughs> I, mean, I know that is bullshit. I know, I but remember it. Do you think that was something he brought as the character, like the character's quote? It was, was a little bit. It was a little bit bullshit. <laughs> do you have a checklist when you're when you're when you're acting when you're preparing for a role? Yeah. Do you make like a list of character traits? Like, do you? I guess the question is: Are you no. a professional, or do you just show up and like start <laughs> acting? No, no, no. I, I think uh, when you get a screenplay, there's a lot of clues as to what who the character is, and and uh, I kind of work more. I mean, it's weird to talk about what your process because everybody's is different. But um, I've worked for uh, ever since I was successful. I've worked with a man named Vincent Chase. Oh, you know what? In fact. I was out to dinner with a girl in Hollywood uh, after Club Dread, and we ran into you and your acting teacher, your acting coach, yeah, Vince in, and in Chase. a restaurant. And then we said, but I was just on a date with this girl, and, yeah, sure. and, and you invited us. <laughs> I had slept with her one time, <laughs> and you invited us to sit down with you, and she was all excited. She was like, "Oh my God, Bill Paxton." And the four I have no to, recollection of this. Bill, I, I bet I could tell you anything right now. Do you remember the time you sucked my dick? <laughs> <laughs> I have no recollection of that. Because Kevin, I have no Kevin was there. I watched. I, I'm going to be like those IRS people. I plead the fifth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what's for dinner. Yeah, Kevin was sucking your dick that, at, while <laughs> you did it. Like a, I don't remember that either. I don't remember that part. <laughs> All right, move, let's, move, let's, let's talk about another movie. Let's people want to hear about it. They want to hear like, they wanna, we got a lot. Well, I think a lot of people give you, you know, like a lot of people throw quotes at you from Weird Science. And from aliens, right? Those are like your two biggest quotes, right? Well, why don't we ask you what are what are the things people shout at you all the time? Yeah, uh, yeah. People, it's funny. People they want to kind of relate to you, or they want to just I don't know. But uh, obviously, um, Chet and Weird Chet, Science yeah. was a was a big one. I did Aliens after Weird Science. Yep. I think uh, Weird Science helped me get cast in Aliens, even though Jim Cameron was di- directing it. Why was that a hurdle? That means since you knew him, was well, it it's you, you know it's funny. Him? You know, I think sometimes, you know, people you know are the last people to kind of hire you. You have no mystique with the with your friends, you I know. See. Uh, but uh, I had point. a great outing with John Hughes, uh, and, and God rest his soul. Yeah. Uh, we only had a very intense experience together working on on Weird Science, but it was a great, great experience. 
but I didn't really I didn't really uh, keep up with him or, or him with me after that. Um, when you say intense, like you were butting heads about? No, we just we just we just we were kind of simpatico. Um, he's a Midwesterner. He's from Chicago, and my dad was from Kansas City, and and uh, and spent a lot of time in Chicago. And so I was kind of raised up. I, I, I consider myself, even though I'm from Texas, I, I always consider myself more of a Midwesterner. Yeah. Uh, I, I was never one of these guys that wrapped myself in the Texas flag or all that. I mean, we were, we were talking about cowboy boots uh, earlier on. The only reason I like cowboy boots is because I, I think it's an elegant-looking shoe for a man. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, true. I do, it too. No, it has nothing to do with, with trying to be a cowboy. I, They're actually I grew up riding horses, and I, I grew up in hor- uh, riding in horse races. I did a lot of cowboy stuff. Cowboy boots are comfortable. You know, I've, I've, you know, I've castrated calves and dehorned them, and I've done all that stuff. But I, I, when we were doing that, we weren't trying to be cowboys. You know, we were listening to Jimi Hendrix and... Have Grand you ever- Funk Railroad. We weren't really, you know, trying to be cowboys. So uh, anyway, my dad was a lumber salesman. He worked for a family business, uh, the Frank Paxson Lumber Company out of Kansas City. And he he always, as a, as a, as a boy, he always had a lot of great uh, stories of being on the road. And, and he always, always full of these great colloquial expressions he would learn while he was, dri- you know, traveling around. And I remember going into the audition for Weird Science and thought, boy, I know this character. I'd also been to camp a lot, and every <laughs> camp I went to had kind of a rite of passage, and mm-hmm. there were always Chets in these camps who sure. were upper upper camp, you know, upper classmen, upper campers okay. who were just only too glad to be there to, ha- to, to haze you. Yeah, yeah, bullies and, and different people, and I'd seen all kinds of weird stuff. I went to camp in, you know, on Cape Cod, and then I went to camp up in Wyoming, and then I went to camp down in the Florida Keys, and I worked at a camp. And uh, did a lot of camping, <laughs> but uh, but I but I but I I started talking. So when I went in the audition, and this is something I, that helped me kind of get my first jobs, I would see the dialogue, and I would figure, you know, it wasn't like you know screen screen plays are not like plays. I mean, you would never consider changing a line in a Shakespearean play or or, or you know a Tennessee Williams play. But, but screenplays aren't like that. They're they're more amorphous. You you can blueprints. Yeah, they're more like a blueprint. That's a good way of putting it. And I and I I had found I had had some success uh, improvising. Yeah. And when I say improvising, I don't mean just coming up. You know. You know, coming up with stuff off the top of my head. I'd usually think of it. I think of it ahead of time. Maybe I'll, I'll change this line to this, or I'll riff on this. And I started doing that in the audition. And John Hughes just lit up like a Christmas tree, because it was it were expressions that I was using that my dad had used on me, uh, expressions like "How about a nice greasy pork sandwich served in a dirty ashtray?" This was stuff <laughs> I just threw in in the audition, and it really and really struck it really struck a chord in John. Can and, I can I ask you a question? Yeah, sure. I, I want to get back to this part, but uh, butter your muffin. Okay, yeah. a line you say to Kelly LeBrock. Yeah. This is you're like I would really like to butter your muffin. I go, lady, I want to get to the bottom of this ASAFP. But first, I'd like to butter your muffin. <laughs> <laughs> Did she know you were going to say that line? Uh, yeah, she knew it. But the funny thing is, I, I remember this was a whole thing at uh, where she said. Um, 
Chet, why do you have to be such a wanker? Yeah, and that British accent. And I and I said I said to John, I said, John, you know, they don't. I mean, I knew what wanker was because I was I, I was dating a Brit at the time, but. I thought, nobody's going to know this. I mean, she needs to say, why do you have to be such an asshole? That's universal. Why do you have to be such an asshole? Because my, I have a great comeback line there. Is most people, you know, you say that, you know, they say something rude and they say, why do you have to be such an asshole and you embarrass them? But with Chad, it was like, you say that to Chad, he goes, you say, why do you have to be such an asshole? And he goes, because I get off on it. And he's like, he's into, he's into it. Yeah. I'm into being an asshole. Yeah. You just gave me a compliment. Yeah. You didn't put me down, you yeah. know. And, uh, and she just, she wouldn't go off of that. And John acquiesced. And I always thought... I missed I missed a better joke there because she didn't give me. You know, so look, sometimes you gotta uh, you gotta you gotta do the alley oop for the other actor. Sure, yeah. You know they th- you know you're just there to give a layup, and I've had to do this, and I've had other actors do it for me. You know, a lot of times you'll see a scene a line and you want to change it, but then you suddenly realize, oh no, I can't change that because that's a feed line mm-hmm. yeah. to the other yeah. actor, and I respect that too. But she was she was really adamant about saying. Well, she wasn't really an actor, actor, right? I mean, she was more of a model than an act, actor, right? Kelly. Well, LeBron? no, she had done uh, the the woman in red. Yeah, mm. you know, she was gorgeous. an amazing girl. I I, I really enjoyed uh, Kelly a lot. I mean, we had a lot of laughs. I remember, she used to rub the back of my head, and she'd tell me she had a better place for it. And <coughs> we, well, we, I'm we, sorry, we, what? Like uh, uh, she was funny. She she do it in her accent, uh, <laughs> Mister Impression. Let's see your yeah, cr- yeah. critic. I have a better place for that line. <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I had a great time. Anthony Michael Hall was was an amazing, amazing to watch. Him and John Hughes could uh, almost finish each other's sentences. Yeah. They were so in sync. And I remember, I got cast pretty early on, and they and I kept getting invited to this uh, bungalow that uh, was John Hughes' office on the on the Universal lot, and. They'd be all hanging out, and one day John was was ready to show the Breakfast Club uh, to 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 Michael Hall, and, and invited me along. And so I was sat next to Michael Hall the first time he saw the Breakfast like Club, like the first time he watched the cut of it. First time he saw wow. the movie, wow. finished. Yeah, okay, that's awesome. He'd done he'd done ADR and stuff. On sure, it. sure, sure. But um, why are you guys touching rubbing me? Each other? He's touching, touching me you right? so like because we had a moment. That was one of those moments. Uh, so, <laughs> but that was a movie though. That, was that the first like big like notoriety that you got from being on camera? That was that was the first kind of I guess what you call legitimate reviews I, I, yeah. I got and and kind of singled out. Although okay. I, I I mean, and that led to me getting cast aliens. In, in Aliens. But Jim, fr- frankly, I I knew you, and I'm sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead, Mr. Paxton. No, please. I remembered you from because uh, I, I like Lords of Discipline and I like Streets of Fire, and I remember I remembered your face. But Chet was the one that you. I know. I'm just yeah, saying yeah. the guys. Are, he's oh, for you even. Yeah, yeah, Lords of Discipline was my first um, kind of a minor supporting role in a in a studio movie. That was you, a great great experience too. Yeah. Do you not like these? Uh, me bringing up these little. Not at all. No, God, Lords of Discipline was one of the great greatest summers I ever had. It really was the fantasy. It's so much of Hollywood and the whole deal. It's just really not. <laughs> It's not what you think it's going to be. By the time you, you, you your face is on a billboard over Sunset Boulevard, you really almost say to yourself, who cares? Uh, and I'm not trying to sound blasé, but, you know, I, I put in a lot of time and stuff. And 
it, it, what you think it's going to be, it, it's never what you think it's going to be. Except when I got cast in Lords of Discipline. There were about ten actors, American actors, that were going to take over to shoot this thing in London. The director was Frank Rodham, who directed Quadrophenia. And I was the last guy in who got the work permit. And uh, I, right from the beginning, I mean, every actor dreams of going on location, working for a major studio. And this was Paramount Pictures. This was London for 12 weeks. And, and working with all these actors my own age. And I remember flying over on Pan American Airways. <laughs> and we were sitting in first class. Oh, yeah. And I was sitting there with uh, Judge Reinhold, who we, who we were getting to know each other, and a guy named Dean R. Miller. And Zsa Zsa Gabor was in first class, and she came over and said, what are you young men doing? I said, oh, we're actors, and we're going over to shoot a movie in London. Oh! And, uh, and the whole summer was magical. Yeah. yeah, It really was. Being in London the summer of 1982 and making this movie and uh, falling in love. Huh? Can you meet your wife? I met Louise there, fell in love. And uh, it was just one of those. It, it really was one of the few times in my entire life where the where the dream fantasy where the reality lived up to the dream fantasy yeah, right. yeah. and it's just and been club one dread. big well, shit sandwich ever and club dread. Oh, no, club dread and club dread until club dread Mark Breland, who was actually one of my favorite boxers get out of here yeah well, I he, love Mark what a great guy yeah he won an Olympic gold medal he did in '84 and I I went to some of those matches and I, I saw him box on several occasions. Yeah, he's good. He, so he's, I mean, he's... I had to be a real racist prick in that movie. And I remember a scene where I had to throw water in his face. And I, I just, I just, you know, I mean, you're acting this stuff, and but you realize that, that, that this kind of racism has, has gone on and still goes on. And, and I just, I remember just really, really, I had to leave the set and I went into the cafeteria and I just cried. I thought, God, how horrible to, to, to treat another human being mm-hmm. like that. Regardless of their creed or color or anything, I, I hate intolerance. I think the greatest lesson I would say, whether I'm playing Coconut Pete or, or that guy, <laughs> uh, it's it's about tolerance. It seems to be you think it would be something that people in the 21st century would have come to terms with and vanquished intolerance, but there's still so much intolerance in the world and. Uh, I, I feel like that's that's the greatest voice that my characters could have it would be a voice for tolerance. Even if I'm playing an intolerant character, yeah. that's still a, a, a you know a, a voice to of of a, of a call to tolerance. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the, yeah, the father in uh, in frailty has a certain degree of that. I mean, he's a little crazy. <laughs> well, not really. As yet, it turns out, yes, he, he's, he's yeah, not yeah, crazy at all. Yeah, you might think he's crazy. He's right on the ball. Exactly, he's crazy as a fox. Exactly. Yeah. He's just crazy, crazy enough. With an axe, new notice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So wait. All right. So let's 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 keep going. Let's keep going. Um, aliens. So aliens. Scott Rudin, the famous producer, was the head of casting at 20th Century Fox. And Jim Cameron had been over in, in uh, England prepping aliens for a couple months. And Weird Science came out that summer. And I got my first uh, kind of decent notices. And so my name was on a list of, I think, about about a dozen actors. 
and I guess him and, and uh, Jim and Scott were talking uh, on a overseas call, and my name came up, and Jim said, well, I, I like Bill. Would the studio be okay with that? And they said, yeah. At the time, I was I was in negotiation to do Police Academy 2. <laughs> yeah. And, As what, uh, the lead guy? Uh, the, no, uh, no, no, not Steve Gutenberg. Gutenberg's part? No, no, that was his part. Sure. No, to play some some uh, some supporting role. Okay, okay. And uh, I, it was more money than I'd ever seen in my life, and I was just ready to jump at it. But they held up the deal because they wanted to. They wanted to, me to sign for two pictures. Okay. And that held up the deal and left me on the market. And I got a call from Hildy Gottlieb, my agent at ICM at the time, and she said, "What do you call a a, a pitch out of?" I go, "Left field." Yeah, left field. I go. I go. Jim Cameron's going to be calling you in twenty minutes, and I'm thinking, God, what is it? It's like must be like eleven o'clock at night in London. I'm, yeah, okay. He says, "Well, there's a part in a, the part you tried out in for Aliens. He wants to talk to you about." It. I'm like, "Oh my gosh!" And I had tried out for Aliens over the Fourth of July weekend while I was over visiting Louise in London for that specific part you tried out for, for the yeah, part yeah. of yeah. Hudson. And I thought, God, I just was so over the top and. Again, you have no mystique with your friends. Or yeah, you just, yeah. They just don't. They, they they know you. They know all your all your all your BS. But it sounds like he kind of fought for you, or, or? no? He just you know one of those things. I have to say, Jim Cameron has been the most loyal colleague and friend I, I ever made in Hollywood. Have, okay. have to be. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and he and he called me up and said, "I'm I'm really excited. I just talked to Scott. They're okay, that Fox is cool with it. We want I want I want you to come soon. Can you get over here?" And I so, could not believe it. Fucking awesome. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. Had he uh, had he done any? Was this his follow up to Terminator? Yes. Okay. And I had had a weird moment with him. I had run into him at LAX. You have to remember, this is back before there was security and all this stuff. And, God, you could just go to the gate. You know, you didn't have to be catching a plane. And I was flying over to see Louise for Christmas. And this was would have been Christmas right after Weird Science. And I still had the, the flat top and everything. <laughs> and I see Jim handing off a parcel to somebody at the gate. And I go, Jim. He goes, hey, what are you doing here? I go, I'm flying over to see, see, see Louise. He said, I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I've been hired to write and direct uh, the sequel to Alien. I go, oh, my God, that's incredible, fantastic. I go, well, you better write me a part. I'm just, you know, just kidding, you know. Sure. And, and God, I ended up, ended up doing that. That did a lot for me. In uh, terms aliens. of what, though? Like in terms of like meeting people or like just exposure? I think exposure, yeah, yeah. absolutely. But was it a situation where, I mean, I, you might have had this conversation with him where he wrote the part for you. Or with you in mind? No, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't say that he wrote it for me, but it just just kind of evolved into that. Or like or maybe the, subconsciously, but I, I, I don't think. No, I don't think so. My character Hudson was named after what we we call it a Hudson sprayer. It's a thing you know you you pump it up. It's like a fire hydrant deal and fire extinguisher, and you use it to you mostly age things. You know, you put like tea in it or something, and you huh. age stuff down. A Hudson sprayer. And that's where they got the character from? That's where the name oh. came from. I like the way you say Hudson Sprayer. Sprayer. I could imagine with, like, lemonade on your porch in, in 40 years. <laughs> uh, Hudson so you, have to, you, have to, you have to forgive me. I, I, I have a tendency. I've been kind of working on a thing about Tennessee Williams, and I, I have a tendency to slip into that accent. <laughs> it's such a wonderful accent. It's wonderful. Because it just I do declare. How, how long so did you shoot the aliens for? How long? Mellifluous, the way I talk about those words. How long did that go on for? Aliens was um, 
Oh God, I think it was like fourteen weeks. Oh wow, and it was a great. It was like you know the cat, like Lance Henriksen's in that cast, and Sigourney Weaver. Sigourney and... Weaver was great. I was I was a little scared of Sigourney. And... Oh, but Lance was on Terminator too. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Lance couldn't have been nicer. He was he was so wonderful. But so okay, so you get that part. You audition. For Jim, which is a weird thing to audition for your friends. I had Jay made me audition for Dukes of Hazard, which I just found to be so disconcerting. Oh, it's horrible. You know, I was just Isn't like, it, well, it's just like, what did he make you do? Uh, he made me read for Enos, which was fine because I wanted to play Enos. I had to read too. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, but it's you like the crazy pyro guy, right? I played, yeah, the guy with the. I had a little helmet, like a armadillo helmet. Uh, you know, that's a forgettable film. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Pack better than you think. <laughs> okay, how about one false move? Because that's like. One False Move is a movie that uh, people don't know this, but Billy Bob Thornton wrote that. And, it, and Tom and, Epperson. Okay. And, and yeah. Billy Bob directed that. No, it was no, directed by Carl Franklin. Okay. So he just acted in it. He acted in it and he co-wrote it. With you. And to me, that's, I think that's one of your best roles. That, that role really changed a lot of things for me. Um, you know, it that's was... the High Noon. Is it High Noon? Kind of a High it? Noon yeah. story, absolutely. And, yeah. um, and that, that put me in front of... Um, uh, Jan de Bon on Twister. I think it also really kind of, well, before that, it, I think it paved the way for me uh, with Ron Howard mm-hmm. on Apollo 13. So uh, it's funny, you know, each, each, you know, to me, the word is parlay, you know, as, as, a, as a screen actor or as an actor, you keep trying to parlay one thing into another, you know, because basically we're just, we're highly paid itinerant workers. Yeah. And you know, and, and when the picking's done, that's it. The job's over, and, and suddenly you're 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 unemployed, and you're looking for a job, and it's it's tough. It's a tough. You can't up. You know, H U S T L. H U S T L E hustler. Never yeah. find a dime that ain't mine, motherfucker. What's up? What's Mers. up? What's up? <laughs> Mers. Are, are you are you preparing for a role as a as a? No, hopper? my son keeps me hip. <laughs> <laughs> My son James keeps me here. Yeah, is that in jail? He turned me on to Murs. He's one of the great, 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 great rappers. I got a question for you from L.A. So I got a question for you, Mid City. Because you're such good buddies with Cameron, why aren't you like a blue Murs, guy? M-U-R-S. Why aren't you a blue guy in Avatar? Like I would have loved to seen you as a blue. You guy You know, in Avatar. I tell you what, I never pimp my friends. I, uh, what does that mean? It doesn't mean you can't be a blue guy in Avatar. I mean, no, just, but I, I would never call Jim Cameron up and go, hey, Jim, you got a part? You know, I just never did that. I mean, I kidded him that one time, but that was really just I was being facetious. and I just it's never turned, though, never, now. He should be calling you up. No, but I never do that. I, I had a funny thing happen to me a couple years ago. I was uh, I was doing Jimmy Fallon, and uh, Avatar had come out. It was a huge success, and I had a, a funny story about that, and... Um, I told on the on the show, and that was um, I got a call from Jim, and Jim's always very very curt, usually pretty curt on the phone. Once in a while, you'll have an extended conversation with him, but when he's calling you about something specific, he gets to it, and that's it. Uh, I remember one time uh, getting a call from Jim, and I was in my apartment uh, in Ocean Park, and it was like, uh, "Hey, J- hey you go, Bill, I go, this is Jim. Oh, hey, Jim." You seen Evil Dead 2 yet? Uh, no. I'll pick you up in 20 minutes. Click. <laughs> and, and he picked me up in his Corvette. We drove over to um, East L.A. and we watched. It was a, it was Evil Dead 2 was playing in a in some 99-cent house. It was on its last legs theatrically. And, and uh, I remember Jim had this this phone. He was the first guy I ever knew that had a mobile phone. Uh-huh. But it was back when there was like a like a 
like it was like a phone attached to like a car battery. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, like one of those things you had to you know yeah crank it up, crank it up, and yeah. like hold it with two hands, yeah, kind World of a War deal. II, uh, exactly, yeah, sure exactly. Yeah. And I remember calling. We, we had this thing with him, and we were in the in this theater, and there were, was nobody else hardly in the theater. And he called his office. He said, "He goes, don't call me for two hours. Put this thing down." And he turned to me and he said, "Check this out." So uh, we watched Evil Dead Two. And this is before I, I'd met Sam Raimi, who I'd end up doing Indian Summer with, and Simple Plan, a, and, and a Simple Plan, uh, yeah. And uh, you know, we watched Evil Dead Two, which was a very unique sure, experience. I've yeah. seen it, yeah. a landmark film in its time. And uh, at the end of the movie, Jim Turmey said, "You know, it's rare in these days to see a movie that actually starts a new genre." And that was kind of the idea of, the, of, of kind of the genre of the kind of the horror film as cartoon. Yeah. And a lot of other big directors, Coen Brothers, Quentin, Quentin, everybody, they've, they've really gone to school on, on something that, that Sam Raimi started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, not, not to take anything away from them, but, uh, but Sam, you, Sam Raimi is the guy who should be credited with really starting a whole, a whole movement in film. Uh, anyway, uh, so I started telling you the story about Jimmy. Oh, and so uh, so where did this one go? Uh, there was another story I wanted to tell. Oh, about Jim. What the hell? I'm losing my train of thought. It's just leaving the station here. Well, we were talking about, I mean, we were talking about uh, One False Move, mm-hmm. and that went into uh, Jim picking you up, and that went into Avatar. Uh, oh, yes, yeah, so Avatar. The blue so, character. Yeah. So I was on Jimmy Fallon telling this story. And uh, anyway, I got a call from Jim one night, and he said, well, one day, and he said, uh, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm just, I'm just here. He goes, he goes uh, can you can come to my house at 7 o'clock? Said, well, sure, Jim. He goes, well, what's about? I'll tell you when you get here. Boom. So I, get, I drive out to Malibu, and I get to his house at 7, and he takes me into his library, and, and sitting on his desk are two manuscripts, or what he calls scriptments. They're, they're basically... They're like a novella of, of the script. Not only is there di- there's some dialogue, but it's mostly description. So they're, they're big documents. I don't know, a couple hundred pages. And there's two sitting on the desk. And one is Avatar, and the other one is a thing based on, that he wrote based on a, a series of um, uh, Japanese pop novels called uh, Battle, uh, Battle Angel. Mm-hmm. And so he says, look, I want you to read both of these. He said, basically, I've done the R&D on both of these over the last couple of years. I'm, I'm going to go forward with one of them, but I'm just kind of right now, I, I just, I, just, I want to I kind of pull my friends and, and just see what they think. Um, so I say, well, well Jim, I, I'm kind of a slow reader. He goes, that's okay. I go, well, well I mean, it's going to take me like, Several hours. <laughs> That's okay. Several points. Just come find me when you're done. <laughs> okay. That's a tall order. Don't ever ask me to do that, Heffernan. Uh, for Jim. Yeah. For fucking Jim. Yeah. So I, I, I read Battle Angel, and it's incredible. Just I, sitting right there in his office or something? You just read the whole thing? Right okay. All right. So I, it takes me a couple hours to read that. Sure. And then I read uh, Avatar. That took me a couple hours. Both 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 properties have huge potential. Right. Um both Herculean efforts, huge budgets, big, big commitments of time and effort and money. And so Jim comes in. It's about 11 o'clock by the time I finish these things. And he says, so what do you think? I say, well, Jim, God, bo- again, both of these things, they're, they're huge undertakings, uh, such big enterprise. 
I said, you know, Jim, I think you should do Avatar because it's original. You wrote it. And I, and I know this as a filmmaker. You have got to be so passionate about the film you're making that, that you have, have to be so revved up that it's going to take you all the way through. And it is a long process, yeah, yeah. sure, as you well know yeah. from the films you've made. Mm-hmm. And I said, at the end of the day, I think that's going to sustain you more readily because this is something you came up with. And so anyway, I was kidding. I was on, on Jimmy Fallon. The thing had come out. It had broken all box office records. It was the biggest film of all time. And I said, you know, you think Jim would send me a, a, send me a set of golf clubs or something? Sure. I get back from New York. I get up to my house, and, and uh, there's a set of golf clubs <laughs> there from Jim. Blue golf clubs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But getting back to your thing is I just never, you know, I just, I've never been comfortable um, politicking, my sure. Friends. Yeah, I know. Yeah, if they call me, and I and look, Jim's been. I mean, God, I've been in. Let's see, how many movies have I been in of his? True uh, Lies, Terminator, Aliens, True Lies, Titanic. What well, I mean is that four? Yes, yeah, four. So four Are films. So okay. no, and I and so I, you know, if he if he's interested in me for something, he he knows my number. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of Titanic, you have a phenomenal story from the set of Titanic. Which was uh, the clam chowder story. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a weird story. That was a weird thing that happened. Can you tell that story? Can you? Is that- I think I can tell it if I can remember it. What happened was we, I, I shot the first leg of Titanic. Uh, they, were, they, were building the, they were literally building the studio and the set to facilitate it down in Rosarita Beach. So Jim and Susie Amos and, and uh, Louis Abernathy and all of us, we went up to St. John. No, not St. John's. We went up to Halifax, mm-hmm. Nova Scotia. And we were on the Keldish, and we'd go off about two miles off, off, off the coast there, and we'd film all night. Uh, this was the a, a couple of days left of filming. I think we were up there for a couple of weeks, and we were there were where the do- where the ship was po- uh, docked. There was a, some warehouses, and they'd built some sets that were the interior of the ship. And we were shooting some scene with Old Rose, and she's taking us back to Titanic. And and I remember uh, we were kind of shooting split days, so our lunch was at midnight. So we'd gone to lunch, and I had seen Jim, and I said, "Hey, Jim, you going to have lunch tonight?" He goes, "Yeah, yeah, let's go. I'll, I'll, I'll join you." The food was so bad on this on this on this this particular cater that I was I had started having my my meals brought to me in my trailer <laughs> from a local restaurant. I, about you know nine o'clock, I'd order order from a menu. But I saw Jim that night. And I said, "Hey, Jim." He goes, "Yeah, come on. They're gonna they're kind of putting on a big deal tonight." So we went in and we went through the line. And I remember having a bowl of this clam chowder, and Jim had the chowder too. And <laughs> then I then as I as I usually did, I'd go back to my trailer and kind of just wait. And it was getting late. I thought I'd take a little nap. And um, I remember there was a knock on on my on my trailer, and I opened the door, and as I there was an AD there. <laughs> <laughs> and as I'm looking at the AD, I'm seeing a bunch of people standing outside the sound stage. And now it's about one o'clock in the morning, and I see like I, I see like an ambulance pulling up, and I'm like, "What the hell's going on?" And I felt a little weird, but I I, I didn't think it was anything weirder than just being up all night, kind mm-hmm. of a deal. And and the and the and the AD said, "Did you eat the chowder?" I'm like, "What? The chowder? Well, yeah, I guess yeah, I had some chowder." He goes. Well, uh, they think that they think there's some kind of a neurotoxin. Something's wrong. People are, and now I'm starting to see like really weird stuff going on. 
people, there's kind of a mass hysteria going on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they go, well, we're going to get everybody up to the Dartmouth. This, we're on the Dartmouth side of the Halifax Harbor there. And there's like a little community hospital there. And it's just a few blocks away. And we're taking, and they were bring, they're taking us all up there. And now I'm starting to feel a little, a little funky. <laughs> we get up to the Dartmouth Hospital. This is like now it's about 2 in the morning. And now it's bedlam. There's over there's 150 people in there, and this is a place that's used to maybe taking you know you know a half a dozen people in emergency. People are so stoned they're doing conga line deals. <laughs> I remember I remember this this still photographer woman. She's crying in my arms and she's freaking out. Mm-hmm. I grab Jim. I pull him aside. And I said I said I said what do you think, Jim? I see, see he think he thought it was a neurotoxin. <laughs> in the clam chowder like the clams had gone bad or something uh-huh. we would find out later that the clam chowder had been laced with pcp and we were all tripping <laughs> on pcp and 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 jim and so we were we were there but jim you know jim is jim is the guy you want to be in the foxhole with yeah not only is he incredibly resource he's the most resourceful human being i have ever met he is also cool under fire and even though we're both like Tripping. coming on, and, and it's not a good trip, it's yeah. not a good high, it's not the kind of high I recommend to be. It's a, it's a sick, sicky kind of messed up high, and uh, <laughs> not that I would know. No, but uh, 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 but now it's it's gone crazy, and they're taking people in into into seeing each person. And I say to Jim, I say, Jim, look, whatever. They're gonna. I'm gonna let them figure out what these people have, but but I can't hang. It, this is getting just too weird. I'm gonna bail. I'm gonna take a few people. I'm heading back to my trailer. Come come down. So I went back to my trailer and and uh, we got a case of beer and <laughs> and the party and the party kicked in a fifth gear. And then we and then basically I just drank all night, which made me feel a little better. And I remember and then and I remember Jim finally coming down. It must have been about four o'clock in the morning and. They were trying to treat everybody, and uh, and and we and he hung out in my trailer. We drank a few beers, and then and then by dawn they were letting us. We were uh, initially we were quarantined. Yeah. You know what the hell this know what was? It was. Yeah. Know what it was? Yeah. And uh, and so then by by the dawn they had us all drinking these um, these bottles of charcoal liquid. Okay, as to flush a, your system. Or well, something, to or? kind of absorb everything. Okay. I mean, there's nothing more sobering than 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 you know, having a bowel movement and looking into into the into the bowl and seeing you know a, a jet black turd, sure. I mean, you know, a piece of charcoal. <laughs> yeah, and, Did uh, they determine what hat? Like who? Well, uh, you know, they never found out for sure who it was, but it was obviously some disgruntled uh, crew member and uh, who decided to. This was a. I don't. I, I don't know. I don't know. They never really figured out who it was. Yeah. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I remember there was a T-shirt made, and and it was the it was, and they, it was passed out. I don't know where this T-shirt is, but it was a big bowl of clam chowder <laughs> with the Titanic sinking in. in it. <laughs> that's but, fantastic. Uh, that's, that's it's Woods for dinner. Yeah. Chowder. Um, you directed two movies. You've directed two movies. Two Frailty, movies. greatest game ever played. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Is that opportunity like the culmination of it all? I mean, was that I, what you were working towards? You feel I like, would or? have to say that that is again going back to my heroes, being guys yeah. like Clint Eastwood, guys who had you know made a certain notoriety as actors, and then they empowered themselves and became filmmakers. And uh, 
I have to say that Frailty and the greatest game ever played are two of definitely the high water marks of, yeah. of my career out here. I don't know if I'll ever best them. And uh, I have to say, another uh, they they're just they just hold a very special place. Did anything surprise? Like when you got to that in that seat, did anything surprise you? And you you had a long career up to that point. I mean, you know what? I I was I was. I should have. I really should have been directing twenty years ago. Yeah. I really, you know, I was kind of afraid to 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 really step up to the plate as a director. I I, I guess. Because, what do you mean? Like you had the opportunity, but maybe you didn't. Not grab really it, the or? opportunity. I just thought, you know, I I thought if if I was going to be a director, I had to be Jim Cameron. Yeah. And what, there's what no way I. Well, like I just you? felt like you know Jim to me was the kind of the consummate director. Yeah. And I just thought, you know, I, I'll never have that kind of uh, knowledge or that kind of um, expertise. And uh, but then I realized, you know, we the you know, different people tell different stories, and I don't, I could never tell a Jim Cameron uh, movie story as a director. But I, but there were other stories, and uh, I had an opportunity. And um, how did you get that frailty opportunity? Well, I. I um, I, I got sent that script. I had a company called American Entertainment, uh, a guy named Mike Colbert, Colbert and, uh, okay. <laughs> and uh, Tom Huckabee worked with me. Yeah, there, yeah, there he's, back. Sorry, he's back. He's back in town. We got sent this script, and Tom Huckabee read it, and, and uh, Tom thought it was, might be a great opportunity for me to direct, and so when I, but the but the producer was was wanted me to, to he was trying to get me to play the dad. Sure, yeah. So I called the guy up and said, "I love the script, I'd love to play the dad. What would you think if I played the dad and directed it?" Uh-huh. And I could tell uh, David Kirshner, the, the producer, wasn't quite ready for that. And there was no director attached at that point. No, there was no, no one. No, there. they were trying okay. to. You know, usually, what they do, you know, they try to get some actors that they can cobble together with the script and Make go it attractive. out and r- yeah. ra- raise yeah. the money. Right. Right. And uh, he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you, uh, you can come in. He goes, I, don't, I wasn't really expecting you to, to say that, but uh, I'll let you come in and, and pitch me yeah. your take on it, which I did. Mm-hmm. Then I was able to get Matthew McConaughey, who I who all, knew the author who, of the script, Brent Hanley, the screenwriter, and we had done um, U571 together. Right, 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 right. So I was able to approach Matthew, and he liked Branton, and he agreed to be in the movie as well. So I think Lionsgate, who uh, financed and, and distributed the film, I think they felt there was a comfort level at $10 million, uh, to have uh, Matthew and me in. Yeah. And the first day you walked onto that set, we were like, holy shit, this is a different thing. This you is what, what I wanted. I, it was like I was, I don't know, it was like... Like I'd been doing it all my life. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what? The other great thing about it is, you know, I, I love acting, and but it's it's such a solitary pursuit. It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I and I really not that kind of a person, really. If you yeah. know me, I, I'm very much of a social animal, and I, I love the collaborative nature of making films. And you know, uh, you guys know how I came and got involved with you. I got into your trip, and you guys yeah. brought me aboard your trip, and. We shared this great experience making this movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we had a great time. We actually yeah. made a, a what I think is a, a, a classic cult film yeah. and a lot of fun. And I got to say, watching it the other night it brought back a lot of memories. But but there were a lot of funny scenes. Yeah, absolutely. Penelope. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and you. With, uh, God, you got just terrific stuff. So. 
as as I got to be a director, suddenly I wasn't. It wasn't a solitary pursuit anymore. I was able to give people opportunities. Sure, like I had been given opportunities. Yeah, and that was so empowering. And and at the end of the day, I used so much more of myself as a director than I ever did as an actor. Oh, yeah. And 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 I felt I felt so much more fulfilled. Uh, as a human being, because it wasn't just a solitary pursuit. Yeah, yeah it's a more. It is a. a That's why I'm a kind of a strange act. actor. I mean, I'm egotistical and I'm vain, mm-hmm. but I, I, but I, 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 I don't get too caught up in it. I don't. I don't drink the Kool Aid. I've, I've sure. had a lot of friends drink that Kool Aid. Sure, not good. But so, so okay. So you prefer the storytelling aspect of it, and now obviously you directed the greatest game ever played. Did you like? Did you? You feel like you learned a lot of stuff. By the time you got to that second movie they directed, like, did you, you know, make mistakes and frailty, and you learned and that kind of thing? Like, well, to tell you the truth, I knew uh, very quickly that I had to throw out the guidebook I'd used for frailty. Why? You know, because it wasn't going to work the same. Because it's a different genre, or because it's a different. No, uh, I, you know, I had to. I had to somehow, you know, light up the, the sport of golf. Yeah, yeah. You know, golf is basically. And you're a golfer. Are you a golfer? Uh, I grew up around the yeah, game. Okay. I'm yeah. not a big golfer yeah. now, but. You know, golf is a game that's played in a park-like environment. Yeah, yeah. You know, shot to shot, and I mean, it can look as interesting as, as as you know, grass growing or paint drying. But tournament golf, championship golf, is a whole other animal. Yeah. yeah, you know, you can come down to a three-foot putt, and there's enough pressure to crush a nuclear submarine. Right. Sure. And and I and I and I realized nobody the, the golf films I had seen. And I hate to rag on on one of my heroes, uh, Robert Redford, but uh, you know he made a god awful movie with Bagger Vance. Yeah, mm-hmm. he had a huge cast, a huge budget. Yeah, and that movie was was just terrible. Uh-huh. Sorry, sorry, Bob. But uh, he's okay. Right. He's okay. Right. He, I think he'll get yeah, over it. Well, golf is a tough one, also. Golf but, is I, a- but but if you're playing tournament, and, and I realized that that uh, there's, there this was an opportunity, but I realized very early on that I couldn't apply the same film rules that I did to frail. Frailty is kind of shot like like simple plan. Yeah, yeah. The, the the actors have to do all the heavy lifting. You know, the camera has to be completely unobtrusive. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't think about mm-hmm. the camera. And uh, but where his greatest game is, I, I had to make I had to really make the camera a character. You had to use some stylistic things to make to, it interesting. Put the make, ball on the lens, or yeah, that kind of stuff, flying you know? and underneath, going in and, the cup, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, early on, I was working with a I worked with a, an artist named Mick Reinman. He's a great artist who did all my storyboards, and um, we talked about the idea of wouldn't it be cool to to show things that the eye can't really even see? Yeah. And that way, that lit up the game. It was a real challenge that movie because really, it's it's a four act movie. Uh-huh. It's a four act story. You know, they have all this, you know, all this golf, and then there's a there's a playoff, so they have to play more golf. Right. So I tried to approach each golf sequence as as kind of an action sequence. Try to figure out different ways to, to do them so they didn't fall into kind of a, a right. pattern. And I got very lucky with my cast on that movie, and and I have to say I got very lucky with everybody who came to play on that movie. They just all brought. Who was your DP? Who's your DP? Shane Hurlbut shot that. Uh huh. Hurlbut. Uh, That's a great name. He's great. Great. Mike Weaver. Mike. Now, Mike. Yeah, Mike Weaver, who I met on uh, Club Club Dread, Dread, ended up playing um, John McDermott, which was a, a great part. I remember he had to come in and try out for it. 
I hate to put people through it, but I. But Weaver, I had, you don't mind, right? I'm mean, not Weaver. Yeah. No. You need. <laughs> I, I had. I had producers. I. Where is Weaver? He's, he's Weaver's on. Up. He's supposed to be around here. Is he still coming. He's yeah. definitely coming. He's yeah. Meet up oh, with us, yeah. God. So, uh, but I remember a lot of people came and read for that part, but I was secretly rooting for Mike. For Mike. And he did a great job. Weirdly enough, I was with Mark Frost last week who wrote uh, the screenplay and produced the film. And we went back for the 100th anniversary. This was 1913. Well, the the 100th anniversary is this year. And we went back for the We Met uh, Scholarship Fund dinner. 2,100 people. I sat with Arnold Palmer and Mark Frost. And Mark, uh, we were talking about the film. And it's... uh, Great source of pride for both of us, and uh, they were playing the music from the movie, which was incredible. And and uh, and we started talking about Weaver, mm-hmm. and uh, and, and uh, Frost said, "God, wasn't wasn't he great in the yeah. movie?" I said, "He wasn't he just he's a talented dude." Wasn't he just? Are you gonna now? What are you gonna do about directing now? I mean, I know that you want to direct more. You have things in the hopper. Do you have? Uh well, I got a few things in the hopper. Uh, I was hired by Legendary. Uh, to direct uh, a, a new franchise based on the old TV series Kung oh, Fu. Oh, that's Kung right. Fu. I saw that. Kung Fu. Wow. And the, the script is done, and most of it's story. Were you a huge fan of the original series? Like, how did you yeah, get on I, board I was a with fa- that? I was a fan of it. Uh, it was As just was one I. Of, yeah. But it just it was one of those things that came my way. I had directed a, a short for um, the Red Camera people. Yeah. Uh, again, I got a call from Jim Cameron about two years ago, and, and Jim said, "What are you doing?" I said, "Well, right now." He goes, "Yeah, what are you doing?" Right now? I, I'm cooking some pasta for my daughter. He goes, "Well, I mean, are you working?" No, no, no. He goes, "Well, you know, Jim Gennard is." I go, oh, "No, no. He, he started the Oakley Company. He started the Red Camera Company." Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard, I've heard of him. And he said, "He goes, well, he needs somebody to direct a short." And he called me up, and I can't do it. And he's got this new camera called the Epic Red, and it makes it, it's 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 a film killer. It makes it makes it makes digital look it makes digital look like sixty five millimeter film. Uh-huh. I want you to and shoot he, something and sink and, it, and, goddamn. And, and I said, well, yeah, great, Jim. He goes, well, I want to recommend you. He needs somebody to direct a short. And I said, well, well, great, Jim. Have him call me. He goes, well, there's a catch. I go, well, what's the catch? He goes, well, I think he needs this thing in a week. I go, Jesus well, well, <laughs> Okay, have him call me anyway. Are you one of those just a purist guy? Like you're those anti anti. Uh, Digital guy? Are you like the the purity of film guy? Are you one of those guys or no? Well, I guess I was traditionally. You know, there's mm-hmm. something that film does where it kind of kind of blends everything. Yeah. In a way that digital doesn't. But but they're getting there with digital cameras and this epic red camera is. Yeah. They've got the chocolate. Well, that's what they said. Once you use one, then you're like, well, oh. it's it's a it's. I mean, when the first digital cameras came out. They looked like you know bad video. Sure, and sure. Now they've really. I can't yeah. even tell anymore. Honestly. No, you can't tell. Yeah. And, and when you see this, it's a short called Tattoo. Mm-hmm. We made it in about seven days, which might be a Guinness Book of World Records for something. It's a feature. No, it's a short. It's an eight and a half minute short, but for something um, this realized, it, it, it's a full feature in eight mi- and a half minutes. I mean, in terms of the whole thing is is posted i mean there's there's there's, it's all there it was scored the whole thing yeah and uh anyway it had kind of a a kung fu a kind of a subconscious thing it's it's a you know um eurasian guy walks is in chinatown he goes up into a back alley he's looking for this tattoo master and 
he shows him the design he wants the guy to do, and it's Daniel Henney, and then uh, he meets James Hong, and James Hong looks at the design, says the last person who wore this lived 100 years ago, and then we go back into this old Western. Powers Booth is in it. Oh, and, uh, it's a cool little piece, but it has a little bit of a, because of the Western thing and the Eurasian guy, it, has, it, ha- it, it really is an homage to Kung Fu. Yeah. I wasn't consciously thinking of that when I did it. Yeah. And then after that, I, I, was, I, had, a, I had a chance to have dinner with Thomas Tull, the head sure. of Legendary Yeah, pictures. they made Beer Fest. They made Beer Fest. They did? Yeah. yeah. Legendary? Tommy Tull, yep. Yeah. Believe, believe it or yeah. not, yeah. Yep. You're kidding me. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's good to know. But uh, he was in Shanghai, and uh, we ended up having dinner. I was over there um, having dinner. <laughs> by myself uh, in a strip mall yeah, yeah. not sushi and, pasta and, and I, I I knew he had this thing it had been in the hopper over there and I and I mentioned and I mentioned my interest in it he said you know we've had a couple writers on it but we just don't feel like we've really cracked the safe and I said gee I'd sure love to come in and pitch it with a writer and I did with a great writer named John McLaughlin mm-hmm and uh, and John was commissioned, and I was to oversee it. So we're we're sitting on that right now. Is there a guy playing the David Carradine part? Nobody's or no? cast. Okay. It's not really set. It's just it's just kind of ready to go. They're trying okay. to do it with a new company called Legendary East. Okay, yeah, but it's so taken a while up, yeah. to set that up. Yeah. So I'm kind of in the wings there on that. What is the time frame on something like that? Uh, I mean, do you think there's you're going to get a decision soon? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Meanwhile, uh, John McLaughlin wrote a great uh, spec script called Seven Holes for Air, and this was something I read about three years ago, and it was the it was the writing sample I gave Legendary mm-hmm. to get him hired for Kung Fu. And uh, I was I was kind of stuck. I was doing Big Love, and I didn't really I wasn't stuck on it, but I I didn't really have a chance to really pursue any directing. So I um, I decided I talked to John McLaughlin and said, "What if we turned?" this into a graphic novel yeah yeah baby finally get the fuck out of here michael weaver everybody weaver's in the house there's your microphone michael weaver Weaver. super troopers club dread and greatest game and and many other illustrious just uh, talking about how talented you were weaver yeah yeah yeah. we were i'm glad you weren't here for all right so you got a graphic novel so so i got a graphic novel i'm going to comic-con in July in San Diego, uh, it's called Seven Holes for Air. We took a spec script, and uh, for me, I uh, many times I loved uh, graphic novels, but I always a lot of times I found the story not as compelling as as the artwork. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to take a great script that has a great story and turn it into a graphic novel? Obviously, eventually, I, I hope to to make it into a movie. Who did the artwork? Like who did uh, Mick Reinman, okay. who did the greatest game ever played? Okay. So uh, that's coming out, uh, Arcana. Uh, is the publisher uh, we're coming out we're going to debut it at Comic Con can we talk about Big Love? sure because I'm a huge Big Love fan I'm going to have to urinate in this bottle <laughs> just take a piss in that bottle I, I, and let's see, let's see excuse I, me Katie I've missed that familiar face I need to see that there dick again now burp <laughs> <laughs> but I, I I mean Big Love was after I knew you and so we haven't talked about it though we haven't talked about Big Love I loved Big Love like how did you decide to go do TV like what happened like how did you did someone present you with that part? You're like, this is they interesting. They put a gun to my head and offered me a lot Said, of money. boom. No, they didn't. You loved that. You loved that script, probably. You know, I got a call that they were... I got a call that, that uh, Playtone, Tom Hanks Company... Yeah. Was, Kevin's was putting his. words in your mouth because he, lo- he loves you so much. He would, after every episode, he'd be like, I fucking love Big Love so goddamn much. And I Bill do love so it. fucking good. I hope he appreciates the role he's got. Well, no, the thing was, Jesus. once you hit that second season... 
the second season it really really took off. I think off. a lot of a lot of shows like this they're you're trying to find your, yeah. your your legs in the first season. But the first season was all your ass actually is what it was. There's a lot of naked Bill Paxton and what an ass it was. So There's a legs. lot of him crawling from and bed to bed what an with ass a naked ass. Well, you, you know, I think they wanted to get it get it out of the way right away. That uh, that this guy was married to these three yeah. women, and they had, a, and he was very, very sexually active with all three. But women. the second season was when really the Roman Grant stuff really yeah. started taking off, and that was intrigued me. But I mean, I, I guess I when back, I, like, how did you get when that? I yeah. read that when I uh, I got a call, I was getting I was in pre production for the greatest game ever played. Yeah, and this was my first big studio film. I'd done Frailty for Lionsgate. This was Walt Disney Studios, and I thought I, I want I, I don't I want to clear the decks. I, I'm all I'm going to just focus on this and um brian swarcer my agent uh called me up and said there's this pilot playtone's doing it with hbo it's about a a mormon polygamist and and i guess my first impression was i think the same impression most people had when they heard heard the premise yeah you know i thought was this going to be some guy out in some rural area yeah a bunch of women in barefooted and chickens you know <laughs> right, and barbed wire right, and just like right. some guy f- doing a fundamentalist old testament rap yeah I, it just didn't sound which it, is what i thought and the only reason i watch it because of you I, well I'd that's the only reason I why i watch too. it because of you and then I read, i'd watch and then that other said, show well, by the way and then i read the, yeah <laughs> I'd watch. then i read the pilot and it was so much more than than what i thought it was yeah and then i thought wow and i said well but how can we do this i'm, I'm contracted to walt disney he said Look, it's just a two and a half week commitment right now. They're going to shoot the pilot, yeah. put it together, and then see if if it goes. Uh, again, I, I'm I, this is a world that's a little unfamiliar to me. I uh, I got into features early on, and I really just never went up for pilots. Yeah, right. So I'd forgotten that, you know, and I thought, well, maybe I can do this. And so they were able to work it. So while I was in pre production on the greatest game ever played. I shot the no pilot. No shit, really? You yeah. shot the pilot in pre-production for the movie you're directing? Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. That's how good a director he is. That's amazing. That's how well, good I just wor- I, I'm so glad it worked out that way. But you were also in Canada shooting. Well, I, I was, I was going here? back and forth, wow. yeah. Okay. I was going All back right. and forth between here and Montreal. Wow. And then, and then I remember we were, we were probably in the last couple weeks of filming, and uh, I, I got the call up in Montreal that they were picking it up. But still, they had to write the whole season. So we weren't really going to start till the next spring. Okay. Yeah. So again, I had time to post my movie and, oh, okay. and get it all finished. So you were excited though when they picked it up. I mean, oh were, yeah, oh yeah. And it was a great, it was a great challenge. It was a, a, a great opportunity. I really liked the creators, um, um, Mark Olson and Will Sheffer. They, yeah. they were brilliant guys. Yeah. And uh, and I loved the cast. I remember I had to go through a whole casting process. I was the second person cast. Chloe, Chloe Seventy was cast okay. first to play Nikki. And I remember going over to Playtone and, and reading with a lot of um, barbs and a lot of uh, uh, um, what was Margie. G- Margie's, and uh, I remember. Jesus, Heaven. I remember. God, you're you Kevin loves me. this fucking you scare me now. Again. Look, it's like it's like Lars and Coconut Pete yeah, all over yeah, again. Yeah, watch out! I seen that trine you got back there, and uh, and I remember Just, I remember Gene Triplehorn coming in, yeah. and I thought, God, I hope they. I I, I had se- I'd seen her at a party about six months before at Edward Hopper's not Edward Hopper Dennis Hopper's house Edward yeah. Hopper's fine the artist as well though. great artist <laughs> yeah. but I I got it I got an invitation this is, I'll just tell this is a sidebar story but there was a fundraiser for uh, John Edwards 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was trying to make kind of a run, and was trying to do some fundraising. But it was at it was at Dennis Hopper's house, and I, I like art, and I'm interested in art, and I, I thought, God, I'd love to go and meet Dennis Hopper and be in his house. And I didn't really know John Edwards from anybody, and I went to this thing, and uh, I saw Jean Triplehorn, and I went because I'd always I'd always liked her. You know, people talk about uh, Sharon Stone and Basic Instinct. Let me tell you. Yeah. Gene Triple. Well, there's that oh, sex man. scene. Awesome. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God! That after they've been in the rain. Yeah. Oh, oh my God! God. Yeah. And uh, I just and I I thought she was great in in um, the Tom Cruise movie she did. The uh, firm. The firm. Boy, she was great. Waterworld. And, and I I, I never saw Waterworld. Oh no! World. No, I stayed She's away tough. from Waterworld. She was a tough broad. In you and yeah. you in America and the rest <laughs> of the world. Well, yeah, yeah, I never wow. saw that one. But uh, and I and I remember seeing her. So they she came into the reading and I read with a lot of other gals. That I, I won't mention, but uh, I was just thinking, God, I hope. And, and, and we had a natural rapport. I always thought Jean was from some, you know, blue blood Philadelphia mainline family. It turns out she was a daughter of a musician from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Huh. And we had all these cultural references and we just got on. I think they could see it in the room yeah. that there was a chemistry there. Yeah. And a great, a great actress, a great comedian. You guys should put her in one of your films. You know who plays his daughter in that movie? I do, Amanda Seyfried. Oh, and in fact, I, I brought something for you. Yes? I did. Uh, somebody I know worked on the uh, the set of, uh, of Lovelace. Oh, yeah, yeah. But she was just, I mean, she was a little girl back then. Now she's a woman, but when she yeah. started that show, she was your, your the, little daughter. Yeah, she's my daughter. <laughs> oh, you want to keep me away? You're so protective of this show, Kevin. Well, you know, then, I don't, I don't Jennifer, want to say bad things. Jennifer about. Goodwin was, I had to, I ended up, when I read for her, it wasn't at Playtone. It was over at, at uh, some big conference room at HBO when they were in, in Century City. And uh, I remember there, were, there must have been 20 people in the room, and she came in to read with me, and there was a whole bunch of girls that were having me read with. And I kept thinking, God, I'm going to blow it here, and, and they're going to decide, oh, God, we don't want him. He's, you know, you got the part. You don't want to keep auditioning yeah, yeah, yeah. for it. And I remember um, Jenny Goodwin came in, and I remember in the scene she sat on my lap, and she stuck her tongue down my throat. In the audition? In how, the, yeah. how could she not? Yeah, and I was like, oh my God, this gal's really going. <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm, I'm <laughs> acting in the scene, and I'm thinking, oh my God, this gal's really going for She's it. She's a Methodist. Did, did, you put your tongue, did you put your tongue down her throat? Uh, I, I can't remember what I well, did. Well, he, he had sex but, with her for uh, years. But uh, she got the part. She was terrific. It was a great, it was a great cast. Can I ask you something about that character? About that Margie character? Can I ask you a question? Will you let it breathe? Can I ask a question? Well, hold on. Because you're so question? into this fucking thing. Well, you've never even seen it before, so what do you give a shit? I, actually, I, I've watched every episode. Hey, bullshit. You never watched one episode. All right. Margie's last name in the movie, in this TV show. What's Margie's last name? Hefferton. Hefman. Which Margie is Margie Hefman. Did you know that? Margie Hefman. Margie Hefman. And that's what he used to call me. I know, Hefman. Because he always get my name when wrong. He, didn't know, he still doesn't know your name, right, by He the used way. to call me Hefman. He sent an email. And to I want to know. If that's connected, he still doesn't know your name. Jesus, what a fucking! Where did her name come you from? You are. Where did her name come from? He did the same. <laughs> did thing. you name that character after me, Pastor? I didn't know. I had nothing to do with anything. I live on. I live on Hendrickson Road. And Bill, that's I, a weird Bill, and the guy's name's Bill. I, I apologize. Mean, I apologize for that question. I honestly do. Don't is, you think it's a weird coincidence? Uh, not really. That the character's name's Heffernan, and that's what do he you called me. Kevin James is on this podcast. You can ask him about uh, his character Heffernan and in uh, the Kings of Queens. Uh, I don't even know what you're talking. He's not on this podcast. We're sitting here talking about the show. I know Bill Paxton. We're friends, right? Me and Paxton. I don't know Kevin James. Okay, I know him. Okay, Heffman. So he named he named a girl after Margie Heffman. Yeah, Margie Heffman. Did you ever do love scenes with multiple women in the same day? Yes. 
How good was that? And how good was that? You know, sex it's on the set is, is not great. Yeah. You know, it's it's we, like it's it's about as exciting as having a you know a proctology exam. Well, we it just really isn't. It's not sex. We've done a podcast. Twenty about people that. there. You know, it just you know. Yeah, but it's More a little. It can be a little sexy. Sometimes. I always think of a great story that George C. Scott uh, supposedly said uh, he was going to shoot a scene with a starlet and. He went to her dressing room after lunch. They were going to shoot this thing in the afternoon. And he said, look, I know we have to do this love scene. And uh, I, just want to, I just want to apologize ahead of time if I get an erection. But please forgive me if I don't. Ah, there you go. Nice, George. There you go. Bill, we, we did a, uh, I've done a few love scenes in my day, too. Uh, uh, in Club Dread? I did a number. With Jordan Ladd. Club Dread. Did you find yourself getting aroused? <laughs> Oh, With oh, Jordan I, Land, right? I always do, Bill. Really? No, no. I, I, I think I it's the same. I way. don't. In the beginning, I did, and then as, as they reached between my legs, all they would get was a handful of flaccid indifference. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that is that is cold. I think I remember hearing that line somewhere too. Flaccid uh, indifference. No, but it was like, I like that. Flaccid, oh, uh, like a handful it. of flaccid indifference. <laughs> <laughs> but like, don't you think at the beginning of your career when you did love scenes, I bet you got aroused, and then as it goes on, not really. I think that no, even you know, at the beginning, you're too nervous. You're around everything. I just no, it's not a. It's it not goes a, the it's other not way. A, it's not a, a sexy um, environment for me. Plus, no, in no. that in that show, it was like a it was like a factory for him. He was like just jumping from bed to bed. <laughs> Goddamn conveyor lives. belt. That's what it was. Yeah. Any? Uh, did you ever get any um, chopping wood? Look at the smile there. on his face. Look at his fond memories. Thinking. He's thinking hard. I can't. There's things I can't divulge. Well, <laughs> see, this is what we're talking about. This is, and we're here. not going to make you divulge. No, either, but no, like, no. But I, you know, yeah. I mean, we. It's yeah. It gets pretty raw sometimes, but uh, you know, it, it, it's not. It's not a turn on. You know, I'll I mean, tell you what's raw is real polygamy. There's a show on A and E or one of these <laughs> channels right now about right, a real right, polygamy. Right. Yeah, that, that, sister wives. Did you have to get have any? Knowledge about that kind of stuff, or what? You, what's that? Polygamy. You, I mean, you, to, you know what Weaver's oh, talking about. I read the Book of Mormon, and I read um, I read a lot of books on the subject. I, I love doing research because that's where you. That's Did where you, you watch find the Sister the Wives show that we were talking about? No, no, no is that what Sister it's Wives. I think so. Sister Wives. I think really, I have to say, oh. uh, came about because of Big Love. Yeah, Probably. this is current. It's on oh, right okay, now, okay. and I don't. Th- I don't yeah. think it's that old. They didn't come on until we were in our like. I think fourth. Did you season. get blowback from the Mormon community? Or I, I are you didn't, ostracized I, I didn't personally, or? but you know, uh, you know the the show. I play a character who is is devout. Uh, it's not played with any judgment or or sarcasm. So uh, I I you know I don't know how you know so I, I mean I think but your character un- goes rogue a little bit, yeah. Yeah, a little bit rogue, and, and he has gone back to the old ways. Uh, you know the funny thing about. It doesn't make any difference whether it's a society or country. There's certain things in the history that they're, 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 that a country might be embarrassed about or a religion or whatever. But, uh, you know, your history is your history. Yeah. It doesn't mean that's who you are now. I mean, the Mormon religion was, was founded on polygamy. Yeah. You know, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, and, and they went way the hell out to the middle of the, of the wilderness, to, to Utah, so that they could have basically, a, they could have religious freedom mm-hmm. and create a religious utopia, which is what they did. Um, polygamy was outlawed uh, uh, so that Utah be, could be granted statehood. I mean, that probably wasn't the only reason, yeah. but that was certainly one reason. Sure. And um, it's not something that they they really they they try to kind of keep it, I guess, 
you know, swept under the rug. But anybody who's has any family going back a couple generations as as Mormons, they they've probably got you know polygamy in in their family sure. tree. Yeah. So instead of you know being embarrassed about it or or, or you know whatever, it, it's your history. And what I always thought was, I always thought. Uh, Big love put a human face on a, on a religion that I think most Americans thought thought of as kind of a cult religion. But it wasn't a human face where you're like, oh yeah, I get what they're doing. It was more well, of a human. It was like a God. That's a fucked up situation. Well, I don't, I I don't know. I mean, uh, well, it I was. I mean, obviously, I'm playing a uh, I'm playing a fundamentalist yeah. uh, Mormon. Yeah. But uh, we weren't out to try to. It, the show wasn't about trying to upset right. it wasn't the Mormons and, yeah, or do any of that. Yeah. In a way, I, I felt like just the opposite. Um, but uh, you know how we were asking you about when, uh, like, uh, lines people ask you from, like, or shout at you from Club Dread and things like that and mm-hmm. other movies. When you drive through Utah. Do, Mor- do Mormons shout fucking lines at you about big love? <laughs> no, I, no, not really. No, no. I was just in Utah. I, I have a sister who lives in Utah, and uh, sister wife, <laughs> sister wife. But uh, you know, I, 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 I again, I, I think um, I wouldn't have been able to do it if it was a, if it was, it was satirizing a religion. I, yeah. I believe everybody's religion is is legitimate as, as anybody you know one person's belief or as legitimate as as any other person's yeah. uh, i'm uh, i'm not i'm not you know so uh, i never took any personal hits off of that no i don't no, think okay. so i don't think so this has turned dark i just wanted a little big love talk <laughs> it's all right big love uh, i love big love I love, big love is great great, great say- oh well i wanted to say one other thing about big love and that is uh you know really uh mark and will the creators of the show I think they they wanted to take they 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 took polygamy and used it as a as a lens or you know to 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 refract I guess you know contemporary yeah yeah sure uh, mores about sex and, yeah. religion marriage all these things it was a unique it was a unique POV uh, I got involved it was a very original show yeah I was not a television guy in terms of. Uh, I never had aspirations to be a, 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 a regular on a television series, but when this came along, it had a, it had an originality, it had a pedigree, yeah. and it was HBO who were doing the best series on television yeah. at the time, and uh, I and so I jumped into it. Would you it do it again? A, I probably I would do it again had I not done it, but having done it, I probably would I would do Big Love again, but. I've been offered a few series since, yeah. But I just, just could. It's a long voyage. It's a long contract to sign up for, yeah. And I just don't know if I've got it in me. How many I years? do a ten episode gag or something like that. Yeah. But how I'm many not years behind. was it? Five, five seasons. Okay, wow. Big chunk of of my life. Yeah. I must have spent a year worth of nights staying at the Hyatt Hotel in Santa Clarita in Valencia. Oh, really? That's a strange thing to say. And probably a long time getting that ass in shape for all that ass time. You know, <laughs> the fucking you know I never really did much. They got me Bullshit, some shit packs. Did you wait? Did you, did you did you have a double? double? Did you have an ass double? Ass double. Uh, no, no, I didn't have an ass double. The funniest uh, thing is when you get ass makeup put on. There that's is always a, scene a funny where thing. You oh, that's fucking embarrassing. Ass makeup oh, is rough. Ass makeup. Yeah, you, it's like no, somebody no, down there putting ass well, makeup well, on wait, you. Wait, wait, wait. You gotta go. I gotta. Let's go back for a second here. <laughs> First time I guess I had my ass hanging out in a film. Was in probably in Weird Science. Okay, yeah, yeah. When I come downstairs for breakfast and uh, 
why it's made a nice omelet. Yeah, and, we know it. We know uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> and I whip off my towel and I say, he's got these. He's got a woman's panties on. He's got Kelly Rock's panties on. And I say. He says, it's a joke, Chad. I say, that's not a joke. That's a severe behavioral disorder. <laughs> and, I, and I go, for Christ's sakes, cover yourself. And I pull off my towel and, I, and I, I give it to him. And I realized that my ass looked like green cheese. <laughs> and uh, because I, it, there was no makeup on my ass. Okay. So I learned a valuable lesson. That Fuck, you need makeup, makeup. you but, need. You but that's need, being hypercritical of yourself as an actor, because as a viewer seeing your ass for the first time, I was like, nothing <laughs> wrong with that ass. You're like, I love it. Uh, I love really? Good ass. Oh, Chet's got yeah, a. Well, Chet's been doing squats. Uh, Chet's got a solid ass. Yeah. Know, I, <laughs> Military ass. Right I, I didn't really work out that much. Uh, you know, I, I just I, natural. No, not really. That's not really. Bullshit. Yeah, that's that cowboy really. boot swagger. Big love. You had a solid hard ass boot. Killing me. Cowboy boot swagger. Yeah, killing me, Larry. All right, let's wrap it up. All right, yeah, what are we doing? We should have one big laugh at the end, though. Uh, like a Bring funny up, story? Yeah, one funny topic. Bring up one funny Bullshit, question. You just start laughing. Just uh, give him one question. <laughs> one funny question for Paxton. Um, okay, which, uh, who would you rather... Um, oh, uh, Lemmy. <laughs> you going well, lowest comedy? Well, he's putting me on. on the spot right here. He's well, saying come okay, up with a big question. It's not a sex question. I, like okay, Haywire. You were in Haywire. Would you let Gina Carano punch you in the face? No, because she's got a good punch. That she, girl. she'd kill me in one punch. Hey, one it'd be, punch, it'd be, it'd be two pu- one punch. Me, her hitting me, and me hitting the floor. Have yeah. you ever had fights in movies? What, let me think about it. I've had fights. Tombstone yeah, in movies. Simple yeah. plan. You I'm fight? not a tough guy in real life, but okay. I've, I've, yeah, we I've had to fight guys in in, in movies and stuff. <laughs> and it looks good when you do it. There was some action in True Lies, wasn't there? there was yeah, he really. got the, he got held over like a bridge or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over no, a you were a speed used talked as a about speed bag. talked about his penis. <laughs> and, and yeah. Are you buddies yeah. with Schwarzenegger? Uh, not really. No. You don't have him on your on your speed dial. No, no, no. Did no. you vote for him? Uh, I can't remember. <laughs> That was a long time ago. Um, Did he ever stick his finger up your asshole? <laughs> Did you sire a child with him? By the way, fuck that shit. Did you, you sire a child with him? I do a would you rather. Come on. Come you don't on. even know you, what I was going to ask. You were going to ask a question. Yeah, you were gonna what do you think? I, would you rather fuck know. this? No, that. I was going to ask who he would rather do a dramatic scene with me or Kevin Heffernan. Oh, Jesus. Who would you it's rather do a cry for help? Like, Everything in life is an act of love. You know, it's funny you should say that. It is funny you should say that. I think both of you guys could have great dramatic careers. William, oh, thank you. William Paxton, you stop that. If you're I, I think c- comedians make better tragedians. Oh, tra- I've never heard that tragedians. word, tragedians. Because, because they have a, a more of an acuter sense of irony. <laughs> <laughs> He's going Tennessee Williams again. Which is what life is all about. It's not irony, it's irony. Tennessee Williams said, Hot Crane is my favorite author. When I die... I want my bones placed to the bones, the submerged bones, you bet at sea, of a hot crane. He never cared if he shocked people, and I don't particularly care if I shock people. People who are shocked by the truth are undeserving of the truth. And the truth is something one must deserve. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Bill Paxton, everybody. Yeah, yes, Tennessee yes. Williams. On that note, should we leave it there? Let's chew. One time. Everybody has to chew. You have to chew. Bill, just come on, Bill, just chew. <laughs> I got a bell. <laughs> Give us the first guest who won't chew. Chewing we were chew. chew. I'll chew. Just chew. Just chew in there. Get in that microphone. Sort of a the slow chew is packed mm. in. 
It's like a tortoise chew. It's what's for it's like dinner. I'm chewing my cud. You like it's cud. It's what's for dinner. More, more sexual. <laughs> Just, mm-hmm. All right. All right. Thank you. Wrap it up. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Bill Paxson. Thanks. Yeah. Maybe we'll Who's go my number? have a drink or something. Yeah. Bill, by the way, it's been a pleasure having you on. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I guess I did. I think you, I don't know if you did. <laughs> first podcast. But he doesn't enjoy first anything. Podcast? Yeah, yeah, his first know. podcast. He, enjoyed, he didn't understand it. He's like, yeah. what are we talking so long for? You're a for? podiatrist? What the shit is going on? What are we talking so long for? I don't it's, understand. It's a good it, thing we didn't, have candles, we didn't have candles burning in here for the paraffins, because we know the paraffins fuck you up. Did you hear that story? You remember that story? I don't know that. We were recording the song for... Uh, we were one of the Coconut Pete oh. songs. You came you out to Nate Barr's. Uh, oh God! He had you came out to Nate Barr's house and you had in, and you walked I into the room and you're like, you had to sing. You're like, God damn it! Yeah. <laughs> Who lit all these fucking candles in here, man? I got to sing in this room. There's paraffins everywhere. <laughs> all these goddamn paraffins. Goddamn paraffins everywhere. Put the fucking candles I, I can't out. Stand. Uh, He's trying to set a mood, old Nate Barr. That's what Nate Barr was trying to do, and he was like, Centronella candles. I can't stand scented candles. I know you let him know that. You were ornery that day. The other thing was this. That day, anything. That day, he had just come back from doing a movie with with Orlando Bloom. He just come back from doing a movie with Orlando Bloom. Haven went Which nowhere. Yeah. Went nowhere with a bullet. And I made an Orlando <laughs> Bloom. <laughs> I made an Orlando Bloom joke. I made an Orlando Bloom joke oh, I bet about Stephen Delane. Maybe not one. No, actually, that was a pretty right. good movie. Yeah, uh, Haven's a good movie. I think it's on Netflix now. Yeah, no, I, got, I got involved with that movie because of Frankie Flowers, who <laughs> right. wrote and directed a great movie. But I made a, a joke about Orlando Bloom not maybe not, not picking him for my football team, <laughs> and you got really fucking mad at me about that. Did I? You did. You're like, well, he is a fantastic man. You can't don't make fun of him. He's like, better. Oh. He's. But when was that? That was right after you came back from making that movie. You're still pissed because you made that movie right for Club Dread. Did I? Yeah. I made a joke about Orlando Bloom. You jumped down my throat. I liked Orlando Bloom. Yeah. And now Lemmy does a bit about him in his stand-up act. Really? So about, you know. uh, Orlando Bloom shaves his dick. <laughs> or actually gets his you butler to shave, shave his dick. You can't shave your dick. There's no hair on your dick. <laughs> oh, no, you're right. Unless you have like a cactus uh, dick. <laughs> no, you're right. Yeah, there's no, I bet there's there's a, no hair on I don't your dick. I bet there's a hair, hair at the base at the base penis. of your penis. I've seen your penis, Bill. You've got hair on your dick. <laughs> I'll tell you the yeah, dolphin yeah. swimming around bar I've seen his cock. Well, that's Bill's go-to move. He's like, we're going to go in the mangrove forest and do some dolphin swimming. Get him out in the mangrove. Let's go down and get out in the mangrove. Take our suits off. Yeah. Hey, let's show each other's dicks in the mangrove come forest. On, come what, on, what come happened? On. To this? There's a woman in the room. <laughs> what happened? I'm sorry, Katie. I don't know. Listen, Bill. People. I tried to end this uh, this podcast or whatever you call it. You know, like I five didn't minutes ago. I call it ago. anything. You right. called it. I mean, anything. whatever one calls. He it. calls it a waste of my time. Yeah. <laughs> I call it a favor for you, pussies. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's go. All right. We've chewed it. We've cued it. We've uh, rooted it. Oh, I don't know. Let's, let's end it. it. All right. Let's do it. All right. It's All right. Over. Later. 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 Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Now leaving Nerdist.com.